Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we're able to look at here this morning. We thank you that we as, as a church can, can gather to, to talk about you and to be submissive to you and what you would desire us to, to, to be and, and how you desire us to think. We pray that you would help our hearts to be uh, encouraged through uh, one another as we look at your word in the context of a community. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. The art of, of persuasion is a, a difficult art to master. It's very difficult to convince someone of, of the truth of something that you think sometimes whenever they think differently. So, for example, maybe you are at, at work and you have a coworker, and, and the two of you are approaching a project. And, and your opinion and your coworker's opinion, or maybe you're at school and you're, you're doing a project and you, your opinion and your, your, your fellow student's opinion, they're, they're different. And you both have very strong opinions about the best way to, to approach this issue. And because of, of the differences of opinion, you can't persuade the other that the other's wrong. Or maybe you have a, a political belief and your parents have a different political belief and you're very disturbed by their political beliefs and you, you think, boy, if I could just persuade them of the, of the foolishness and the terribleness of their political positions, then our lives can be so much better and yet every conversation with them seems to make the situation worse. Or maybe, if you're like me, you've been involved in multiple theological disagreements, and there have been times where you've, you've been talking about a, a passage of Scripture, and you and the person you're talking with, you just can't quite seem to come to any sort of, of common understanding about what the, the, the right interpretation of this passage is. Now, sometimes, sometimes it's, it's honestly not that big of a deal, right? You know, you and your coworker. You have differences of opinions, but, you know, at the end of the day, you both care about the company, and the, the differences aren't going to make or break the, the mission of the company. Or, or you and your, your parents are going to still have a good relationship. Or, or you and this other person, maybe it's a theological issue that's it's really not that crucial, and so you're not going to be all that concerned about it. But sometimes, sometimes it is an important issue. And sometimes uh, people that we, we love are, are persuadable, and sometimes they're not persuadable. A long time ago, Aristotle, that, that famous Greek philosopher, theorized that there are multiple ways, multiple tools that we can use to persuade people at times. So, for example, he talked about using ethos. Like that could be a, a, a tool, ethos, and that, that refers to, to character. So you appeal to your character, your knowledge, or uh, logos, the, the idea of using logic to persuade someone of a position, or or pathos, uh, emotional appeal to a person. It doesn't surprise us to know that Aristotle was a dad, right? And you think about a, a father using those different persuasion techniques, you know, uh, ethos, the, the appeal to authority. I, I'm your father, please go to bed. Logos, if you, if you go to bed, you'll feel better in the morning. Uh, pathos, the, the emotional appeal, please, I beg of you, I'm, I'm your father, I, all I do is love you, and, and all I do is, is for you, and, and now just in, in, in kindness to me, please go to bed so that I can get some sleep as well. My father used pathos, the, the emotional appeal at times. I remember growing up and, and dad saying to me whenever mom had maybe asked me to clean my room or something, dad would, would say to me, he'd say, son, your mother 
all she does is, is love you every day, all day long. All that she does is, is for you and because she loves you. And, and certainly you can, can have in, in your heart a desire to, to bring her joy by being obedient. And, and son, it's like, it's like you're a, a lineman playing football. And your job is to protect your quarterback, who is your mom. And instead of protecting your quarterback, you've turned around and tried to tackle your own quarterback. And I'm not sure at what point it becomes pathos and sports analogy but with my father, but that's uh, some of the appeals that he used to us, right? Well, as we think about what the Apostle Paul is doing here, we, we see that he's using pathos. He's using an emotional appeal. And God, I think, has designed us to, to be susceptible to emotional appeal because there are, at, there are at times where our hearts can become very hard. And, and due to our, our hardness of heart, sometimes God can use relationships that we have with other people to kind of get behind that, that wall of hardness and reach our hearts and help us rightly think about him and about our responsibilities before him. Sometimes where logos, logical appeal, and appeal to authority, all those things won't work in our hard hearts. Sometimes God, in his grace, uses relationships, uses emotional appeal to help us think rightly about him and about our disobedience to him. And here in Galatians, as you look at this text, specifically, uh, beginning in verse 12, what we see is that Paul understands the benefit of personal appeal, and he uses it powerfully in this epistle. Perhaps nowhere in the epistle more effectively than in these verses to help the people that he loves very much. Here's kind of the main thing I want us to think about as we look at this, this passage together. Relationships, relationships with our brothers and sisters who are also in Christ— are used by God to, to grow us in our understanding of an obedience to the gospel. So, so God, what God is going to use at time is he's going to use our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are also in Christ to help us grow in our understanding of an obedience to the gospel. And so we're going to look at a couple of truths here. And as we look at these truths, hopefully we're going to gain our understanding of how God might use relationships in our own context as well. So, let's, let's look at a couple things here. First of all, the first truth that we look as we think about how God uses relationships to help us grasp the gospel and be, be grounded in the gospel, the first truth we look at is this. Godly friendships, godly friendships begin with the gospel. Godly friendships begin with the gospel. And look at what Paul says as he begins this section. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, remember, what has Paul been talking about? Look in your Bibles with me, if you would. And as we think about what he's been writing about, we see that he has been encouraging them to think rightly about how a person can be in relationship with God. So you go back to chapter 2, and, and Paul is recounting his conversation with Peter. And he says, look, um, we're, we're Jews by birth, we're not Gentiles, Peter, but yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. You come into chapter 3, and he says, look, verse 10, those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. He says, 
In Christ Jesus, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You come into the end of chapter 3. There's, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And then he talks about how a person becomes an heir. And he talks about how you used to not go know God. So, so what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, look, a person is justified. A person is declared righteous by God, not by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. A person becomes an heir not through obedience to the law that makes them an heir to the promises of Abraham, but a person becomes an heir to the promises of Abraham in one way and in one way only, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. We get connected to the promises that God made to Abraham, not in our own selves, not in our works, but in Christ. We've seen that, right? So if that's true, which it is, Paul says, then then this must be true, what, what, what he's about to say. And he gives an imperative, an instruction. This is the first All throughout the rest of Galatians, this is the first time that Paul gives a direct instruction. He says, brothers, I entreat you, and this is the the instruction, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. This is the first imperative, the first active directive that he gives. And, And what is he saying? He's saying, I want you to become like me. Both you and I need to forsake False paths to God. You need to become like I am, just like I had to become like you are. Now, how did Paul have to become like the Gentiles? Paul, as, as, he, as he tells us, is a person who was a Jew of Jews. Paul had the ability to, to be declared righteous on the basis of his own works if anyone ever had the ability to be declared righteous on the basis of, the, of their own works and adhered, adherence to the Old Testament law. That would have been Paul. And Paul says, look, at some point I had to become like you. I had to recognize that all my Jewish obedience to the law meant nothing. And so I had to become like you, and now you need to become like me. You also need to rely upon Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for your sanctification. Both the Jew and the Gentile needed to forsake false paths in order to embrace Christ. Paul says it was true for me in terms of justification. It's true for you in terms of justification. It's true for both of us in terms of sanctification. All of us, Jew, Gentile, need to become like one another in the sense that all of us need to abandon false paths to God and find our way to God only through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, brothers, I entreat you. And then he gives this imperative. Now, what's significant about him using the term brothers? What's significant about him saying, I I entreat you? When he says, become like I am, as I also become like you. In other words, both of us need to find our identity in Christ and and our hope in Christ and not works of the law. 
He's saying, I'm, I'm making this appeal in the context of relationship. This appeal that Paul makes to the Galatians is not an appeal outside the context of relationship. There's a a godly friendship that exists here, and that godly friendship is grounded in what? It's, It's grounded in the gospel. When he says, become as I am, for I also become as you are, both of them became like one another in the sense that both of them responded to the good news of the gospel. This is the the true gospel that Paul begins his epistle talking about. He says, I'm astonished that you're calling him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. If anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed, as I've said before. So now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The, the gospel is the foundation of the relationship. And Paul says, I'm going to make this entreaty to you, and I'm going to make this entreaty to you on the basis of our shared relationship, this, this, this brother relationship we have, because we both have heard and responded to the gospel. Godly friendships are dependent upon both parties hearing to, and responding to the gospel in faith. And, and that truth, that reality, is what separates this, this sermon from just kind of a, a feel-good appeal to, hey, why don't you be nicer to one another? Why don't we just kind of like each other more like we should? What we understand as believers is that as we respond to the gospel, we come into relationship with one another, and the, the context of our relationship is founded upon the gospel. Think about it this way. What happens when you have two people who have both heard the gospel? If I wasn't holding the microphone right now, I'd do this. Person number one. What happens? It was going to be very effective. Um, what happens when you have two groups who have, who have two, two, two people who have both heard the gospel? Well, it means that, that both people and respond to the gospel in faith, two Christians. It means that, that both people believe that they're sinners, first of all, right? Both of these people believe, okay, I'm, I'm a person who deserved God's wrath, and I understood, I understand to some degree at least God's holiness and my own sin. I've, I've begun to see sin as God sees it. I don't look at a friend. If, if I'm in Christ and this other person is Christ, we both respond to the gospel, it means I don't look at them and see their, their sin as personality quirks. And they don't look at me and see my sin as, as just, well, that's how Daniel is. Both of us have an understanding of, okay, sin exists. It means that if, if two people have, are both in Christ, both parties believe that they've been forgiven, not by their works, but by faith. In other words, we both see one another as, as forgiven people, and we see ourselves in this relationship as a person who's been forgiven. Remember what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew chapter 18. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, uh, Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? So this, here's a person I'm in a relationship with. How many times should I forgive him? May, and Peter, trying to be super spiritual, says seven times. So we're in this relationship together and he wrongs me seven times. Uh, should I be super spiritual and forgive him all seven times? And what does Jesus say? He, he tells him, not seven times, but 77 times. And the, the point isn't, of course, to, to tally up that, that many number of times and say, okay, now we're done forgiving each other. But instead, Jesus tells this, this parable 
to describe the nature of forgiveness that should exist within the, the, the context of a Christian relationship. He talks about the, the king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants and, and how one came to him owning 10,000 talents and couldn't pay him. And so the, the servant implores him to, to forgive him and the master forgives him. And then another servant comes to this, this servant who's just been forgiven and also asks for patience. And this servant who's just been forgiven refuses, put him in prison. And the, the master hears what's happened. And listen to what the master says. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master, Jesus said, delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In other words, as, as people who have been forgiven great debt, Christians come into relationship with one another as, as understanding, okay, I'm, I'm a forgiven person. And that relationship, founded on a gospel of forgiveness, affects how we do community and life together, right? Both parties believe they've been forgiven by faith and not by their works. Both parties in a Christian relationship believe that the goal of life is what? To glorify God, not themselves. Both parties believe that, and this is important, both parties not only believe that the, the goal of life is to glorify God and not themselves, Isaiah 43, 7, uh, God tells us he's, he's created us for his glory, but both parties in a Christian relationship, both pe- respond to the gospel, both parties, in that type of relationship, both parties believe that there is, this is important, have a continued need to be exhorted to live in the gospel. A godly friendship begins with the gospel, and this is so important because a person who has responded to the gospel believes that they are a forgiven person, believes that they are a person who's been forgiven a great debt, believes that the purpose of their life is to glorify God, and now believes, and now believes, a Christian believes as they think about the gospel, believes that there's a continued need to live their life in light of the gospel. The gospel is not just some contract they entered into with God to save them from hell. The gospel is a living reality as they think about who Jesus Christ is and the relationship with him. Both parts parties in a godly relationship, in a godly friendship, in the context of a, of a church that believes the gospel, both parties are approaching a relationship with the belief that they need one another's help to live as God has called them to live. It's crucial. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. Watch how you live. Not as unwise, but as, as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And so a person who has responded to the gospel, believes the gospel, has relationships found on the gospel. The gospel is, is working in their lives as their hearts are transformed by God's work. And they have now the indwelling of the Spirit. And then he says... You're to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 says we're to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And and those of us who believe in Christ and are in Christ have that as a desire. We want to hold fast to the confession that we've made. 
And the writer of Hebrews says, how do you do that? He says, well, he who promised is faithful. And he says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing nearer. Now, Paul, as he makes his appeal here, believes that he's talking to brothers, to brothers and sisters. And so he says, so brothers, I, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Let's remember the, the foundational truths of the gospel, that we have been forgiven, first of all, that we're sinners, that we've been forgiven not by our works, but through faith. And that we have a continual need to walk in obedience to God, not through works, but through faith. And that God would enable us to do the works he's called us to do. Not because of who we are, not because we follow the Jewish rules and regulations, but because we're in Christ and he is working within us. Godly friendships begin with the gospel. Now you're saying, Daniel, that that we can't be friends with unbelievers, we can't share things with unbelievers. Of course not. You know, several years ago, there was a man who was, was, was talking to me. He said, you know, I, I think you and I could be really good friends, which is kind of a nice thing for someone to say to you. You, know, like, you don't want someone to come to you and say, you know, Daniel, um, I think you're a terrible human being. I could never imagine uh, enjoying any time with you whatsoever. Uh, he said, no, I, Daniel, I think we could be really good friends. I said, you know, I, I, um, I agree. You know, we can, be, we can be friends. I enjoy the time that I spend with you. But and I said, but, you know, here's... Um, if you sense kind of a distance between us, here's, here's the distance that exists. Here's the things that you believe about, about God and about Scripture and about who he is and, and about the church that I attend and the church that I love. You, you don't love the church the way that I love the church and the people in it. Um, I said our, our friendship, as, as much as I desire to, to be in a position where I can encourage you and love you, there's going to be some barriers because of some things that we fundamentally disagree on the gospel. You say, well, if, if godly friendships begin with the gospel, what, what should I do? Well, I think it means we need to seek godly friendships. We seek godly friendships so we can encourage one another. We, we cultivate friendships through Christ-like love. God calls us to have relationships not characterized by gossip, not characterized by a lack of forgiveness, not characterized by backstabbing, but through sacrifice, to be people who are worthy of, of emulation. Ephesians 4 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. He goes into chapter 6. Be imitators of God, or into chapter 5. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we cultivate those friendships through Christ-like love. We value these relationships. We value godly friendships that begin with the gospel. Remember what 1 Samuel 18 says, that David and Jonathan are, are, become friends. And it says that, that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan saw the beauty of the relationship with David. He saw in David someone in whom God was working, and he desired that friendship, and he valued it, he treasured it, even, even as he realized that God's plan was for David to reign as king instead of him. Here's the second truth. Godly friendships not only begin with the gospel, godly friendships 
remind us of God's sovereign grace in our lives. If we're going to be in a context of a church, of context relationships with other believers, these friendships are going to remind us of God's sovereign grace. Look at, look at chapter uh, 4 here in Galatians and look at verse 12. We continue here. Paul has said, become as I am, for I also become as you are. And, and then he continues, you, you, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So he, he first of all, as he talks about the relationship, the first thing he does is he looks to the past. And he says, look, as I, as I consider the past, I, I don't see that you've wronged me. I don't see relational discord. I see good things. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily never did anything wrong to him in any way whatsoever. But he's saying, look, as I think about the past, especially in terms of, as I look at it through through gospel lenses, I see good things. You didn't mean no wrong. You didn't defraud me in any significant way. And he says, look, remember, remember that, God was gracious in the midst of a time of suffering. Look at verse 13. He says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And so we don't know exactly what took place. But remember, this is an argument that Paul is making from pathos. There's this emotional appeal. And so he says, I want you, in the context of our relationship, brothers, I want to entreat you as as a friend. There's an emotional appeal here. I want you to remember this, this time where I was suffering. It's a, this is a, a appeal from pathos. You can almost imagine Paul there on his, his sick bed. Remember me there, right? Now we don't know exactly what his ailment was. Some people have have uh, speculated maybe it was malaria, maybe it was some form of epilepsy, uh, because some of the, the terminology that's used there in this this verse and next. Some have speculated maybe there's a, a problem with his eyesight. We, we see that. Uh, he talks about their willingness to, to give him his own eyes. He talks about his eyes in other passages. So maybe it was something to do with his eyes. We don't know. But what do we do know? Or what do we know? We know that as he looks at the past, he sees suffering. And he sees that the gospel was proclaimed because of his suffering. He says there was some sort of bodily ailment, and maybe it was malaria, maybe it was his eyesight. And because of this bodily ailment, I, I was able to preach the gospel to you at first. The, the gospel was proclaimed because of my suffering. And, and I, I think that Paul's suffering showed vividly the, the truths of what he was proclaiming. He was proclaiming a, a works, uh, a, a faith based not upon works, but upon faith. And as they looked at him, they, they saw a person who was not relying upon his own works because he was a person who was physically unable to do those things that a person might need to do. The Galatians look at Paul and they see him living something that was countercultural to what would have been expected. And then the gospel was confirmed by their response. Look what it says in verse 14. He says, my condition was a trial to you, but you didn't scorn or despise me. Now, why do you call it a trial to them? Or another word you could use to, to translate it there is temptation. Why might have Paul's condition been a temptation? Because Paul comes into this region to people who don't necessarily know him, and he's preaching this gospel that may have been foreign to them, 
And what might they have wanted? They might have wanted some sort of super speaker to come in and come in and kind of you know, stand up there and deliver this amazing oration and his, the, the strength of his own power and might and be able to give this, this rousing message. And then there's this, this uh, pure emotional response, not grounded in any sort of truth. And so they, they might respond to that. And Paul said, that, that's not what happened. God in his grace allowed me in my suffering to be in your midst and proclaim the gospel to you. And then God also in his grace in the time of suffering allowed you to respond to that message of the gospel. You didn't scorn me. Literally, that means to, to spit out or to spit upon. And you weren't disgusted, in other words, at my weakness. And you didn't despise me. You didn't view me with contempt because I wasn't some mighty messenger. Instead, God in his grace, through our relationship, allowed the gospel to be proclaimed. Paul had something more powerful. His response to physical distress. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians as he talks about proclaiming the gospel to the Corinthians, and he talks about suffering. 2 Corinthians, Paul begins in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you can turn to 2 Corinthians if you like. I want to read a couple of passages here. Think about the gospel and, and suffering in the context of relationship. This is God, verse 4, 2 Corinthians, verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with a comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we, as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, so you will also share in our comforts. In the context of relationship, Paul saying, I know that as we suffer, we're suffering so that we can, can comfort you. And as you suffer, you're, you're suffering so you can comfort others as well. Verse uh, 17 of chapter 2. Paul says, we're not like so many others, peddlers of God's word, but we're men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. Paul's, Paul's message of suffering had added weight because of the things that he had been through. You turn over to chapter 4. Paul says this in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. A person who's undergoing suffering as they engage in gospel ministry has the ability to proclaim, yeah, this, this body is is a weak body, but let me proclaim to you the truth of the gospel in the context of our relationship so that as you come into my life and look closely at me, I can proclaim the greatness of God's sovereignty and his grace and his love even in the midst of suffering. You come in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1, we know that if our tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. A person, as they are in relationship with you and see you suffering, what happens? They have the ability to see that your hope is not in this mortal frame, 
but in God who raises the dead. Verse 11 of chapter 5, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Verse 16 of chapter 5, from now on then, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, might, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through Paul's suffering, here's the point, through Paul's suffering and through the Galatians' gracious response to his suffering, the gospel was proclaimed. The message of Christ's all-sufficiency was crystal clear through Paul's suffering, through the Galatians' response. And Paul reminds them of that. And why is Paul able to remind them of that? Because they have a relationship. Pathos only works biblically in the context of a godly relationship. This type of pathos. Now this truth changes our view of friendships and relationships in the church, I think, in some radical ways. That we view the purpose of our relationships differently. We view the events that take place in our relationships differently. Whenever bad things happen, we don't see suffering as some sort of thing that means, you know what, I need to abandon this relationship. But instead we see, okay, the suffering in the context of the relationship means that I need to draw closer to God and pray that God uses this situation to deepen our relationship and to glorify himself. Suffering does several things in relationships. Suffering humbles us. It's easy to present a certain front to other people who aren't in relationship with us, but whenever something happens in our life that, that brings us to our knees, we, we cannot continue the facade that we are some sort of self-sufficient, mighty beings any longer. Suffering humbles us for our good. Suffering forces people to value Christ more than ease. Suffering prepares us to minister to others. You know, someone once told me, they said, you know, uh, Daniel, you say things sometimes from the pulpit, and it's hard for me to listen to you because I don't know if you and Whitney have ever gone through anything hard in your lives. And to that I said, well, you know, um, our difficulties have certainly been minor, probably compared to many others, but, but perhaps, perhaps there are other people in your life that God can use to help you see that the truths of the things that we're saying and, and not, not have to look to me for the, for the truth of this necessarily. In other words, God is perhaps using the difficulties you are going through right now so that you can minister to others in a way that I or other believers can't. I think as we think about this idea of suffering and being reminded of God's grace, it, it means this. It means that we view our commitment to relationships differently. We need to be committed to grace with one another. It means that we need to be committed to long, lengthy relationships. You have to commit to a relationship for a long time before there can be a, a history that you can point back to to see examples of God's sovereign grace. Here's a third truth. Godly friendships 
godly friendships treasure Christ more than the friendship itself. That's the, the last point here. Godly friendships treasure Christ more than the friendship itself. Paul writes this, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So there's this exhortation in verse 12, and then there's thinking through the past in verses 13 and 14. But, but then, as, as amazing as the friendship is that Paul has, he says, I don't view this friendship itself as an end in of itself. The value of their friendship is, is great, right? The value of the friendship is great, and this, this isn't something that either of them viewed cheaply. They've been incredibly dear to one another. In verse 15, they're, they're dear to one another in the gospel, so I testify, you, you, would have, you, would have, you valued me and you valued our relationship so much that you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. And yet, and yet, despite how valuable that relationship was, Paul says that the, the truth is greater. The value of the friendship is great, but the value of Christ and his good news is greater. And the threat to the friendship that exists right now between Paul and the Galatians is a threat that's central to the gospel. The threat to the friendship is found in Paul's truth-telling. The gospel is more valuable than the friendship. The friendship is not the master over the gospel. I wonder if we believe that, right? My dad uh, told me a story one time. Uh, about a young pastor who had begun his first pastorate in Kentucky. And he, he got up his first Sunday and he preached the first sermon. And the first sermon was on the, the evils of whiskey. And one of the deacons approached him after the, the church. He said, young man, uh, you don't know what you're doing. Half the church works in the distilleries in, in the area. It's Kentucky. And the young man goes, oh, yeah, I didn't know that. And so the next week he gets up and he preaches on the evil of gambling. Same deacon approaches him and says, look, you must be a special kind of stupid boy. Um, you know, the other half of your church works in, with, with, with horses and horse racing. and Gambling's involved in that. Third Sunday, the young guy gets up and he preaches on the evil of deep sea uh, fishing off the coast of Alaska. You know, whatever he can do to avoid making people uncomfortable, right? Brothers and sisters, we, we, we squander our relationships sometimes, not realizing why God has put us in the context of relationship. God has not put us in the context of friendships and relationships so we can preserve them at any cost. They're, they're tools that a God who loves us has given us to encourage one another. Why has God put you in relationships? You know, uh, this, this past week, uh, this past week I was uh, confronted probably multiple times, uh, but, but, but two, two significant times. Two, two significant times people came to me and said, hey, Daniel, here's some things we see that we, th- we think need to be addressed. The, the, the first that comes to mind is I received a letter, and it was a letter from someone who, who doesn't know me very well. We've had a couple conversations, and they said, you know, here's, here's some things that I'm concerned by. And as, as I read the letter, I, I appreciate the time that they took to, to write the letter, but as I read the letter, I thought, okay, there's some things that I can learn from this, but... but um, I don't see myself in this. Right? Now, now, maybe my heart was hard. Right? I'm not sure, but I don't, I don't think so. I, just, I, I don't think this, this letter rightly reflects me. This person doesn't know me. 
the second conversation I had was with Kirk Hoffman. And if, if you know Kirk, you know that he, he knows me pretty well. And Kirk began the conversation with me, Daniel, I love you, but, <laughs> right? Which is not the way you want your friend to begin a conversation with you sometimes, right? But the things that he said were exactly right. Talked about how I'd responded inappropriately in a situation. He was exactly right. And I could replace a Kirk's name with, with any number of people who work closely with me, with any of the staff, with Ben or Kent or Mike or Phil or Blake or whoever, or any of the other elders or with uh, Diane or Heather or any of the other the people who work uh, with me in, in the office or Debbie Joe or Kurt. All of those people have relationship with me. And all of those people, by God's grace, to one degree or other, or other elders or other people who have relationships within the church, use those relationships for, for what? With good, with good intentions, with good, good purpose. The purpose of a relationship is not for the friendship itself, but God uses those relationships to help draw us closer to him. Friendships are not an idol I preserve at any cost. They're resources that I leverage, not manipulatively, to help those I love pursue Christ. Relationships with brothers and sisters who are also in Christ are used by God to grow us in our understanding of and obedience to the gospel. God's given us these gifts, and he has us use these gifts to draw one another closer to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the ability we have to walk in obedience to you. We thank you for the the friendships and relationships you've given us by your grace. And we pray that we would be good stewards of these relationships. If we don't have friendships, Father, help us to pursue them. Help us to pursue relationship with those who will love us and care for us. And help us to find joy in the context of relationships you've given us. To be conformed more and more to the image of your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen.